Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to, and if you're watching on YouTube, watching Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to Howard. Oh, and I forgot to ask you, is it Levine or Levine? Levine. Howard Levine. Howard, welcome to Alligator Preserves. Thank you very much, Laurel. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. And happy Valentine's Day. Today happens to be Valentine's Day. (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day to you also. And here you are sharing it with me. You're coming to us from Washington, D.C.? Silver Spring, Maryland. It's suburban Washington, D.C. Is it raining or snowing or doing anything ridiculous there? No, it's just cloudy, temperate. Because I'm I'm looking out here at a huge storm that's coming over the mountains here, and we're probably going to be buried with snow up here in Leadville, Colorado. So um, I envy your, your temperate weather. Well, Howard, would you please introduce yourself to our audience? I'm Howard Levine, and Last Gasp is my second published novel. I published a novel earlier in this century, 2001, called (laughs) Leaving This Life Behind. And I'm a retired teacher of special education and of English as a second language, also, I taught transcendental meditation before I became a public school teacher. Huh. And yeah, so I'm enjoying my retirement with my lovely wife. Who, who earlier I found out was a little bit of a tech support for you. <laughs> she's a tech support and she's also my editor in chief. Well, I got to say, give her kudos because holy mackerel, I read Last Gasp and I immediately thought, of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, immediately. So have you studied his work? No, I haven't, but I would like to sell as much as he sells. <laughs> I, I bet you would, and I actually can't believe that you haven't. Have you read The Da Vinci Code? No. Oh, I can't believe you haven't. It really did. It brought me right there. Um, and, and I'm also taking his master class. They have master classes online, something that maybe in your retirement you might look into. It's, yeah, I, uh, I've seen something about that, yeah. It's, it's really good. You should take it. But I, I don't know. Maybe you don't need to because, as I said, I was, I was thinking, oh, my goodness, you have this crazy religious zealotry going on right from the beginning of your book. Now, you say in an interview last October, in an interview you did with The Big Thrill online, that you were not looking to tell a political story or write a thriller. That's what you said. That is correct. How did you accidentally manage to do both, and quite brilliantly? Well, I, the way I write, basically I get a central idea. I don't consider myself a writer of thrillers or any other kind of genre. My only requirement in terms of writing a book is that it's enjoyable and readable and holds the reader's interest. And I had this idea, what if a right-wing government 
staged a terrorist attack with the aim of blaming it on Islamic radicals. This was sort of back when the Iraq war was going on. And just once I had that idea, I felt, okay, that's a viable idea to work with. And as I went along, things kind of fell, fell in place. But again, I did not start with the notion, oh, let me write a thriller. It just, that particular idea came up and I went with it. Well, it's really, it's, again, it's really hard to believe in, um, in Dan Brown's masterclass. He does mention getting ideas from news headlines. Right. Yeah, and there's, there's always plenty in the news to get ideas from. <laughs> yeah, yes, there is. So last gasp at the start of it, we know exactly, this is not a whodunit. We know from the start that your character, Billy Patterson, is this religious zealot that does this horrible thing. We know right from the start, but we don't know how they're going to, let's say, find him. And I'm not going to give away the ending at all. But <laughs> right. It, yeah. So the, the character himself, he's chilling. And yet, as the story unfolds, somehow you were able to present him in a way that made me and maybe other readers feel some bit of compassion for him, like, if only in confusing flashes, flashes every once in a while, like, oh, I can, I can understand where this man is coming from. How did you do that? How were you able to make me feel a little bit of compassion for this guy? What is it from your background that gave you this ability? I feel that everybody has different aspects to, the, to their personalities, to their lives. And people who commit crimes, horrible crimes, such as in the novel, are people who may have suffered a lot in their own past, who may be confused. And beyond that, I think it's important that, that major characters are rounded, that they are not just one-dimensional. And so while he's presented at the beginning as this religious zealot, as you point out, I felt it was important to sort of go into how he got there and to present him in, in more than just one dimension. And maybe, maybe the nudges that he got along the way? Right. Yeah, because I think that, that that's a very good point that you bring out. I mean, he was sort of a pawn in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea was his, but, but he could have simply been told, you know, that's crazy. Forget about that. But instead, he was used by people with power and people looking to maintain and enhance their power. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a line in there where you're talking about the Koran, and you have this this organization, All for Allah, in there. Um, And you talk about the Koran being, quote, seemingly every bit as malleable as the Bible. How has your religious background, your own personal religious background, influenced the content of this book? Well, my religious background is Judaism. I don't know if that particularly influenced the, con- the content of the book. More, I feel, and we see that a lot nowadays, that some people who claim to be religious are not behaving in a way that, that reflects the values of almost all religions, love, compassion, acceptance of different individuals, even if they are not the same as you. Okay, so from that standpoint, I was very much influenced in terms of what I wrote in the book. 
I was wondering if that was your author voice coming out a little bit in that, talking about the malleability of the interpretation of religious tomes. Yeah, well, we see that. I mean, today, you know, we see people, evangelicals, who they claim to be Christians, and yet they're endorsing hatred of strangers. They're endorsing values that, while I'm not a Christian, I know enough about it to say that they're endorsing values that that Christ himself would never endorse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that that strong dichotomy, and we see that today, particularly in evangelicals supporting Trump, who I would say is kind of the antithesis of what Jesus taught a person should be. You have, as I was reading, and, and I'm doing this lately, and, and I think you probably do it as well, when you become a writer, when you have a book out there, as you read other works, you read um, in a way that's analytical, and you maybe study sentence structure, or you stop and are amazed occasionally at a sentence that just stops you. Um, there are so many wonderful sentences in Last Gasp that made me stop. And I've got to say, I really appreciate your your writing style. I, I find it very elegant. I kind of laughed when you mentioned President Flowers, his face on the TV being, quote, electromagnetic pollution beamed into his living room. And then later on, you described the branches of a tree as tentacles disappearing in the vapor. And just beautiful, beautiful imagery. You create a wonderful sense of place in your book and your dialogue is really natural, just flows naturally. When did you know that you could write well? I've been writing for a long time. And at first, when I was in college, I had a short story class with Joseph Heller and he looked at one of my short stories and said, okay, you can try to submit this to magazines. Uh, don't necessarily expect to sell it. But at that point, I sort of felt, well, okay, this is some objective verification that I have some ability to write. And over time, you know, I've written many novels. And over time, in submitting them to agents and editors, there was a time you could submit directly to editors at publishing houses. It's not anymore, not- though, right? Exactly. Yeah. But and also at that time, you would get feedback from them. If you got a rejection letter, they would give you some feedback, some constructive criticism. And I feel all of that helped me a tremendous amount. My wife is very astute. She, she reads constantly and her opinions have been very helpful, her feedback. So it's kind of a process of developing as you go along, seeing what you need to strengthen in your work going over it many times. I mean, I'm sure as a writer yourself, you're familiar with this. Very yeah. familiar. I just finished my, oh, I don't know, 20th million edit of my third ah. book in my Water White series, <laughs> which I'm pretty happy about. And, and it's funny because every time you go through, every time you search on one word, like the word maybe, or the word now, and you find how many you've used it, and then you go back, and every right. single time you use it, you you end up rewriting the sentence, and in, in most cases, making the work better. So, right. Right. Yeah. yeah, and one thing you mentioned about, about dialogue, uh, I feel it's very important that, that people speak in a natural, believable way. 
I mean, if the characters are not speaking in a way that, that sounds like, oh, these are real people that I can relate to, then that undermines the whole story. Absolutely, it does. And that's a great segue into talk about characters. But first of all, I want to ask, what's, what's your wife's name? Marion. Marion. We've got to give Marion a shout out. And before this ends, you've got to bring her in to say happy, uh, to say happy Valentine's Day <laughs> to her as well. Um, you talk about characters. So talk to me about, first of all, your naming convention. How do you name your characters? And, and let me just jump in and, and talk about the last name, Tedeschi or Tedeschi. We, I grew up in Braintree, Massachusetts, and our supermarket was Tedeschi's supermarket. So the name just jumped right out at me. But how do you name your characters? Well, Tedeschi, that name just kind of stuck in my head. There's a blues singer by the name of Susan Tedeschi. I don't really listen to her music, but just the name itself had a certain quality that I like. It sort of fills the mouth somehow. <laughs> you know, in other situations, like Folks, the FBI agent, a teacher that I worked with, Jennifer Folks, I borrowed her name. So Billy Patterson was originally Billy Harrelson, the name of another teacher that I worked with, but then I felt, well, he's the, he's could be construed as the villain. I should rename him. And I had to go through the whole, <laughs> through the whole manuscript and change Harrelson to Patterson. Pick a name that with the same amount of letters so that, you know, there wasn't too much rejiggering involved. The same feel. Yeah. You, you come up, you get a feel for the name. Reverend Maximilian Tate. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know where that came from. Maximilian has a certain kind of officiousness about it. It um, does, and even his character, right? The huge evangelical church, and you have the word million in his name. Was that conscious? <laughs> you know, Laurel, I never thought of that. That's a, that's a, very, that's a nice observation. <laughs> very astute. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. How about your band name? Shove it up. Uh, just, I wanted something that, that conveyed this band is in your face. You know, they, they don't kowtow to any taboos. I mean, I, th I think the name, kind of, you see that name and you know a lot about this band already. You know, they, <laughs> you know they're not playing violins. <laughs> right, right. No, I mean, again, your sense of place and mood. You, you just, you nailed it. You really did. Uh, for those of you just joining and listening to us today, we're talking with author Howard Levine. Go ahead, hold that book up. Howard, author of Last Gasp, which is aptly named, I've got to say, a chilling, uh, a chilling thriller. I'll, I'll just say it, even though you didn't mean to do it. It is. It really is. And again, it's Dan Brownish, I, I think. So, back to characters. Do you have a brother? I do. Tell me his name and what's your relationship with him. His name is Gene, Eugene, and he's 19 months younger than me. And, you know, we have a very good relationship. When we were younger, we didn't necessarily. As time has gone on and, gone on and we've both matured, uh, we've developed a close relationship. We can talk to each other we're really the only connection that each other has to our family at this point. So we have, we have a fine relationship, you know, we, we talk regularly. 
Because the relationship that you establish between the two brothers, Frank and Rob, is is perfect. And kind of like you're saying, when you grow up with someone, uh, you know, you have to love them. You don't necessarily like them. But once once you move away, maybe you begin to appreciate one another a little more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's basically a good person and he has good values. And, you know, but you're exactly right. I mean, the siblings, that kind of love-hate relationship, I mean, and particularly, you know, we grew up in a housing project where there were kids all over the place. And it was just an environment that, that was kind of very exciting, but a lot, a lot of tension was in the air at the same time. And, you know, we had a family with, you know, four children in it. And so there was just a lot of pressure growing up uh, in New York can be a wild kind of experience. And, um, you know, I, I think that affected our relationship. So you have uh, a couple of sisters too? Well, they're no longer with us. But you grew uh, up? Yeah, oh, yeah, we grew up together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these two brothers, you made them uh, a Vietnam veteran. One's a Vietnam veteran and the other is a police officer. Are these people you know? Did you study or do any research in Vietnam vets? Do you have personal experience with those two lines of duty? I did research on Vietnam. I mean, the, there's one scene in particular and, and bits in other scenes where the war is depicted. And then to do that accurately, I had to do research. I mean, I've known people who served in Vietnam, but basically Frank and his brother Rob just to have their characteristics are characteristics of people I knew in New York. You know, they're kind of masculine image, their their desire to, you know, just have what they want in life, uh, struggling against, you know, different, different things that are impacting them. Um, you know, being a police officer in New York City is a very, very difficult job. And, you know, I think that's reflected in Rob and kind of the the rough edges that he has. And uh, those rough edges kind of play into, you know, his relationship with Frank and their, their estrangement. And then ultimately, they're coming together of necessity in, in what they have to do in the novel. Right. And uh, that just worked so well. Each of their talents, each of them, there were times when, and I see this in my own sons, sometimes I have, I have two sons, where they're both very right about what they're talking about, but they're arguing with one another, <laughs> even though they're both right. Yeah. It's, it's really funny. Great yeah. dynamics in that. You have an organization in there, Vietnam Vets Against the War, and that's an actual organization. Are you a supporter of that organization? I think I read somewhere that you are a bit of an activist. Relatively speaking. I mean, my wife and I, living outside of D.C., we've gone to demonstrations. Mary and my wife has, you know, made phone calls, filled out postcards and mailed them to voters. I wouldn't consider myself an activist compared to some people I know, probably compared to others I am. But during Vietnam, you know, we were both opposed to that war, and more so over time as we learn more about it. As we learn, for example, that the, 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 Tonkin, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was in fact fabricated, and that in fact there's a precedent for the government 
lying in order to further its aims in terms of war or something else. So there, let's switch to the actual writing process and your actual writing process. What is your writing routine now that you're retired? And I'm retired too, but oh my gosh, I'm working all the time. Yeah, yeah, I find the same thing. I really do. And my writing process hasn't changed much, except that it's a little more comfortable to fit into my schedule. But I can write, I mean, I've been in situations where I've had to make revisions for an agent or a publisher. And in those situations, I can, I can write longer. But generally speaking, an hour and a half, and I'm done. You know, my mind is spent for that session. Morning, and, afternoon, evening. Morning. Morning. Yeah, and you know, I've read writers, and they write all day, and I say, wow, how could you do that? But, you know, personally, I have a certain amount of time in which I can really focus and it is, as you know yourself, it's totally absorbing when you're doing it. But there comes a point when you say, okay, you know, enough. Done, right. Yeah. Are, you, are you a planner or a pantser? Do you know what's going to happen from start to finish? Or do surprises happen or a little bit of both? A little bit of both. I would like to be able to outline and plan beforehand more than I can. But particularly with, with less guests, I found that as, as I went along, possibilities presented themselves that I didn't see before. And, and you know yourself, if you're stuck in a particular place, then when you're not writing, your mind is with that and, and, and things come up. They just do. Work, working on it. And again, many of my books, I dream in Technicolor and I get characters, I get scenes, yeah. I get things that just shout out to me that they need to be in, in my work. But yeah, our brains never turn off. The creative process is it's remarkable. It really is. Do you have tips or advice for other writers and authors out there? Tip number one is to get objective feedback on your work. You know, when Marion, I, I finish a chapter, I show it to Marion, and I, you know, I know she's going to tell me exactly what she thinks. And, you know, I demand that of her in a gentle way <laughs> because this is what you need. I mean, after you've looked at your work repeatedly, you cannot see it clearly. So that is the first piece of advice. Secondly, you know, as much as you can, develop your own voice. It has to be something that's natural to you that will feed into natural writing. I found, you know, with my first novel, I was trying to present, you know, certain ideas, certain, certain understandings that I had about life. And I was, I was starting to write nonfiction, and I realized, no, you can't do that. If you're going to present ideas and concepts, it has to be in the context of, of the writing. It has to flow naturally. Otherwise, it just stands out like a sore thumb. Well, talk, talk to me a little bit more about, you said it couldn't be nonfiction because you were talking ideas. What do you mean? Well, and maybe this uh, has to do with your first book, right? My first novel entitled Leaving This Life Behind was somewhat notable and it presented a fictional hereafter in great detail. And the reason that I did that was, was basically because I felt there is more to us as individuals, both in this life and afterwards. And I wanted to express that in a fictional context. And 
so I found myself trying to put across certain ideas, dealing with reincarnation, other subjects, and I didn't want to be giving a lecture. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you can you can present content, ideology, concepts, but it has to be in the context of the story. It has to mesh with the characters that you're depicting. If you're all of a sudden giving a lecture in the middle of your novel, then it just is going to stand out like a sore thumb. Yes, got you. You've been doing transcendental meditation for how long? Since 1970. (laughs) Do you want to talk about that at all? What, how that works into your daily routine? Well, I just twice a day, morning and evening, I, I practice meditation and it provides me with greater clarity of mind. It taps the resources that exist inside of us. This is basically what meditation does. And, you know, going back to college, I mean, I'd before that class with Joseph Heller, I mean, I had, I had another fiction class and the professor basically told me, you know, this is garbage, <laughs> you know, and one of the most noticeable effects of meditation when I first started was that it did seem to improve my ability to write fiction because, again, it taps the creativity in this side of you. And maybe it allowed you to accept criticism a little better. <laughs> I'm still working with that, but yeah. Are you afraid when you put something out of criticism? Because, I mean, you've got great reviews on Amazon for Last Gasp. Right. Yeah, and I appreciate them. And, I mean, I don't know how you feel. When you show somebody your work, are you, I mean, how do you feel? Do you feel relaxed or do you feel a little worried about what they might say? I always feel very anxious because, again, when you write something and when you put as much as we put into creating a book, and it's no small task, and then you give it to someone you, you know, it's like giving them your baby, right? And you don't want them to say that your baby's ugly. <laughs> and, and yet you, you have to, you have to get that feedback, which you were talking about earlier. And oh my goodness, I have, I have to give a shout out to two of my friends, Carol Bellhouse and Stephanie Spong, who edited my work, all three books of the Water White series, because they were brutal in pointing out things that I was doing that I didn't know I was doing. In this last book, I actually made my main character's love interest weak. And I didn't realize I had done that because I really wanted to make my main character strong, but in doing so, I made the other one weak. And we don't see that in our work. So yes, it's, it's nerve wracking, but it's also exciting because we know that it's done to a point, right? And then we know that we're going to have to put a lot more work into it based on the feedback that we get. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, your description of how you feel when you're about to be, when someone's about to provide feedback on your work, is exactly the way I feel. You know, I'm anxious about it. I mean, even if Marion is doing it, you know, I still think, oh, what's she going to say? And it's an interesting experience because most of the time when you look back over the material, you can kind of see what the person was talking about. You know, it, it's, it, you know, having another point of view is kind of an amazing thing in a way because, you know, you, you, we're stuck inside of our own heads, for better or worse. We definitely are. And I think some, some people say, don't be too precious about your own work. <laughs> right. You have to 
again, it can't be emphasized enough that, that you need feedback. Mm-hmm. You just do. And even you assimilate the criticism, it helps along the road. But everything that you're writing is, is something new. And you just have to get that informed opinion on it, that other subjectivity. And, and from people you trust and whose opinions you admire. And so you use your wife, Marion. Is she, is she around? Is she there? She Bring is. her in. Bring her in. Bring her into the screen here. She is coming. <laughs> and do you have anyone else? Beta read your book. Hi, Marion. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for doing whatever you did to his book because it is, it's a winner and it really should sell as many as Dan Brown sells because it's a page turner. I appreciate that. Yeah, Marion, uh, again, without flattering her, Go uh, ahead, flat, go ahead and flatter her. This is Valentine's uh, Day. Her input is invaluable. I mean, she's got she's got a very clear head, and you know, I think she's a great listener and she's tuned into people, and and you know, this is the kind of thing that you need because, Absolutely. as you said, you know, characterization is is so important. The people need to be credible. Right. Any other other shout outs you want to do? How about Black Opal Books? Yeah, I'd like to thank them for publishing my book. I think they did a wonderful job. And my agent, Donna Eastman, she provided useful feedback when uh, when I did the first edit on the book. And, you know, she placed the novel. I've had other agents, agents who are more prominent even than Donna, but they never wound up selling my material. If you can get an agent, it's it's an indication that you're not totally deluding yourself that you can write fiction. Has that value, but you know Donna actually placed me with uh, with a publisher that that I found to be very effective, very easy to work with. And what has been your most successful marketing technique as far as selling books? Well, Last Guest just came out in September, so I'm I'm really still seeing you know what the sales are going to be like down the line. Uh, with the first book, you know, I, I wrote letters to libraries across the country, sent them reviews. Back then, it was easy to get reviews in newspapers and such than it is now. But the reviews in newspapers helped. There were more bookstores around back then than there are, than there are now. And, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble, Walden Books was there at the time. And I did a lot of, I did readings and signings in these places. and. You know, all of this helped get the book into people's hands, and hopefully there was also some word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's more involving the computer and the internet, and it's much more difficult to get reviews in newspapers and such than it used to be. A lot of books out there, a lot of authors. It's crazy. Howard, how can people find you and your work? Well, if you type in Last Gas by Howard Levine, and you have to say by Howard Levine because there are other novels with that same title. If you type that in on Amazon or Barnes & Noble online, then you'll go straight to the book. You can read um, some of the comments on it, as, as Laurel mentioned. And uh, you can take a look inside. So that's the best way. And also on Facebook, I can be found. You know, are, before- are you the only Howard Levine on Facebook? <laughs> Not quite, no. So how do we find you? We have to see a picture of you? It's hard finding people on Facebook if, if your name is not unique. Well, there's a picture of Last Guess. 
Okay. All right. That should do it. (laughs) And what are you writing now? Right now, I'm working on a novel involving a retired couple in Arizona who rescue two undocumented miners from the desert and are attempting to help them reunite with their father in Maryland, coincidentally, <laughs> and dealing with everything that involves, included the, including the more stringent regulations and quote-unquote enforcement that we see nowadays. Oh, nothing, nothing newsworthy about that. <laughs> she rolls her eyes as she says that. <laughs> I'm rolling them big time. Well, Howard, thank you so much for this amazing visit. And listeners out there, you can find show notes with links and photos because, Howard, you're going to send me some photos, right? I will. Didn't I send you one? Oh, you might. I want more than one. I want more than one. You can find those on my website at leadvillelaurel.com. And join me next time when I'll talk about something completely different. You might want to check out patreon.com slash alligator preserves and think about becoming my patron, a patron of my work. See what wonderful rewards you will receive. Howard, do you spread any preserves on your toast in the morning? You or your wife? Mostly honey. Honey. Yeah, but almond butter with blueberry preserves. All right. Sounds good. Stay away from the alligator preserves. I heard they're dangerous. Howard, happy Valentine's Day. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at Amazon.com.